Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to um, be part of your be part of your service today. And I see some former students out there. I'm I'm a longtime professor at Heritage College and Seminary. Some of the students that are out there remember London Baptist Bible College and Seminary. And I see some of my colleagues out there. And so um, it's it's great to be back here. And great. To, I've, uh, again, it's been a while since I've been here, but it's good to be back. And uh, yeah, um, uh, I'm involved at, at uh, Heritage, have been since 1978. Uh, some of you actually remember that, my, my starting years. And so, uh, yeah, I've tried to retire three times and have been unsuccessful every time. Um, and actually uh, serving now as interim dean of the college because uh, our, our, our dean uh, moved on. So, um, yeah, God is doing some great things at, at Heritage, uh, and uh, we have so much to be thankful for. I bring greetings from uh, our president, Dr. Rick Reed, and his cabinet, and uh, it's great just to be part of this institution for all these years, uh, over 40 years in, as part of all of this. Um, as we begin today, I, I want to read a psalm to you. Um, this is a psalm that speaks powerfully to my own life. And, um, and then I'm going to uh, go into a kind of a storytelling mode. Uh, and you'll figure out why in a minute. Uh, and then come back and look at this psalm uh, from maybe a perspective that we hadn't really thought of before. So I'm going to be reading Psalm 57, and if you have a Bible, uh, by all means, you're welcome to turn there. Uh, if you've got a phone or something like that, you can look it up on that. We have to say that now. Uh, you know, if, if you've got a phone, look it up on your elect Whatever, <laughs> someone's waving a, a pad at me. Okay, so uh, whatever electronic device you happen to have, uh, Psalm 57. Psalm 57. For the director of music, to the tune of... Do not destroy, of David, a miktam, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me, and he sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. And there's a silah there. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Ha, 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 ha. Well, that's kind of in the margin of the Hebrew Bible there. <laughs> my heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. And I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, 
above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, if you'll notice, I was very careful to read the title. And I do think that reading the title of Psalms like this is important because while we're not quite sure the origin of these titles, they're certainly very much embedded in the tradition of how these texts were read by the Hebrew community, uh, by Jesus, by the synagogue in his day, and certainly by the church. And so what we find in this title is a very interesting reference. You'll notice that it says, it's of David, it's called the Mictown. We're going to come back to some of this. But then you've got this little phrase, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. And so this is giving us the backdrop to this psalm. And it's kind of setting for how it was composed. And that story is found in 1 Samuel 24. Now, I've been doing this project now for a few years. Just got, I've got a uh, couple of volumes uh, to be published. And one of them was just, has just been published in the last month or so. And um, called, This Poor Man Called, Songs and Stories of David. And what I've done is I have, I have taken about nine or ten psalms that all have references to David's life. Like this one, uh, like uh, Psalm 51 and his, the situation with Bathsheba, a couple of the psalms talking about his, his time with Absalom. And I have recrafted the story kind of in my own words so that uh, we can read the story in kind of a dynamic, creative way and then come back to the psalm and see it maybe in a new light that we hadn't thought of before. So I'm going to take on the storyteller mode at this point. Some of you have made, may have heard of a guy by the name of Stuart McLean and the Vinyl Cafe from years ago. And he was Canada's storyteller. And I don't know about you, but after church every Sunday, he was doing his Vinyl Cafe stories and songs. And... Um, I would drive home after church and my kids would be wondering where I am and I'm sitting in the car because I wanted to listen to the last part of the story about David Morley in the Vinyl Cafe. Some of you understand what I'm talking about, others you have no idea. <laughs> but storytelling, storytelling, storytelling is such a powerful means of communicating truth. And I think that we have despised storytelling I think that we are quick, too quick to run, well, it's good to run to Paul, for sure, in the book of Romans, but it's also good to run to 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, and Joshua, and Judges, these, these uh, parts of the Bible that are stories. 40% of the Bible is story, and sometimes we forget that story is a means to communicate truth, and most of the stories in the Bible are very much adult stories. Many of the stories that we find in the Bible are really not suitable for children because the Bible is an adult book intending to speak to adult people. So, I'm going to take on the Stuart McLean mode. I'm going to sit on a stool like he did, and I'm going to read you a story based on 1 Samuel 24. (sighs) 
It was David's chance. We had him, our enemy, King Saul. He was in our grasp. Here we all were, David and the rest of us, his warriors, his band of guerrilla fighters, 600 of us huddled in the back of a cave. We've been on the run for weeks and we're exhausted. King Saul was bent on killing our leader, our leader who has been anointed by God to be the next king, our leader who is in fact King Saul's son-in-law, our leader who was a bosom friend of King Saul's son Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, but who had given up that right because he knew that Yahweh, our God, had chosen David. We moved from place to place, hiding in in caves and on cliffs, trying to escape the relentless pursuit of King Saul and his 3,000 men. 3,000 of them. We had one close call. We were on one side of a ridge, and King Saul and his men were on the other side, and they had seen us and were closing in on us. We were trapped. Then all of a sudden, they turned around and took off in the other direction. What happened? We found out later that a messenger had had come and and told the king that the Philistines were attacking Israelite cities to the north, so he had to go and protect those cities. That was a close call, and we praise Yahweh for that providential intervention. We kept moving. We traveled northward along the western edge of the eastern edge of the Dead Sea until we came that famous and beautiful oasis called En Gedi. We couldn't stay there long, but oh, that swim and refreshment was amazing. Then things took a very interesting turn. What we thought was a providential turn. Who should show up in the cave? Saul himself. We scrambled to the back of the cave. What was he doing here? Well, as one of your older versions of your Bibles read, he was covering his feet. Hmm. Later versions of your Bible say, relieving himself. So, as I said before, here was David's chance. King Saul, vulnerable, exposed, and unaware that we were back there. One quick move with a sword or spear, it would be over. Saul dead. Murdered in cold blood, perhaps, but come on, give us a break. He's on the hunt for our leader, and he's out to destroy us all. We tried to convince David. This is a day that Yahweh spoke about when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. We said to him, we're not sure where or when God actually said this to him, but it seemed to work. And off he went, dagger in hand. We waited for the plunge of the knife into Saul's back. And then he did what? We couldn't believe our eyes. He bent down and carefully took Saul's coat that was lying on the ground and cut off a corner of it and quietly crawled back to us the piece of cloth in his hand. What's this? David, you had your chance. It could have been over. And further, oh my, what was this? He has a a pang of conscience. That's all we need right now. This is what he said to us. Yahweh forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, Yahweh's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of Yahweh. We wanted to rush out and do the job he refused to do, but he wouldn't let us. Saul finished his business and left the cave. Opportunity missed. So what now? More running? It wouldn't be long before they found us here, and I have to confess, we were pretty annoyed with our leader. 
This pious trust of David in his God, and yeah, okay, our God for sure, sometimes seemed a little much. And now the next move. Again, unbelievable. David goes to the mouth of the cave and stands there. What are you doing? You're going to give us away. Some of us tried to grab him and pull him back, but, but he fought us all off and he started shouting to, to King Saul, who was across the valley by this time, waving the, the piece of King Saul's coat. And he shouted, Master! And King Saul looked back. And David actually went down on his knees and lay prostrate in the dirt. And he spoke again. And now I'm going to give you what David said to King Saul from the mouth of that cave covered in dirt. All, us all gathered around and having just spared his life, having been merciful when murder was available. And here's what he said, some of what he said. Why do you listen to the people who say David is bent on harming you? You've seen for yourself how Yahweh gave you into my hands and some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand against my master, my Adonai, for he is Yahweh's Mashiach. He is Yahweh's anointed. Then came the kicker. Look, my father, see the corner of your coat in my hand? For by the fact I cut off the corner of your coat and did not kill you, you now, you now see that there's no treason in my hands. But you hunt me down to take my life. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge the wrongs that you have done against me. But my hand will not touch you. He goes on. For whom has the king of Israel come out? A dead dog? A flea? Well, a couple of fascinating pictures there. I'm not sure I appreciate being called a dead dog or a flea on that dog. But David was not done yet. May Yahweh be our judge in between me and you. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Then King Saul began to weep loudly. And he shouted back, You are more righteous than I am, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. For it is true, if a man finds his enemy, would he let him get away safe? Well, that's what we thought. No, he shouldn't, but David did. King Saul again. So may Yahweh reward you for good for what you have done to me today, and now for certain I know that you shall be king. So what do I think about all this? We had our chance. King Saul was in our hands. David took an approach that none of us expected. As I reflect on it more, I have to conclude that he was right. It was not the right time, right place, right way. He gave himself over to the will of our God, Yahweh. As difficult as that was for us, and as easy as it would have been for David to stab the guy in the back, literally. I guess there is a reason why he became known as a man after God's own heart. Well, I know that I am not Stuart McLean. And uh, one time when I told a story similar to that in another church, um, <laughs> a guy came up to me and said, that was good, but you're not Stuart McLean. I thought, okay, that's, that just put me in my place. That's all right. I get it. <laughs> but you know, when I read that story, all of a sudden, this psalm comes to new life, doesn't it? It brings a whole new feel for what's going on here. So let me read the psalm again. This time, thinking about what that story was about. So I'll start with the title again. It's for the director of music. To the tune of Do Not Destroy, it's of David, it's called the Miktam, 
And then this title that has been put into the, into the text as part of the how we are to understand the backdrop to how this text, text is to be heard when he had fled from Saul into the cave. And that is clearly a reference to 1 Samuel 24, which story I just summarized for you in my own words. So he starts off again, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. You can think about that, right? He's in great danger. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. We now know what that disaster is. I cry out to El Elyon, to God Most High, to Elohim who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. We know who those people are now, right? And there's a selah there. God sends forth his, and the Hebrew words there are pregnant with meaning, his, his chesed and his emet, his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. 3,000 of them, right? Be exalted, O God, among the heavens above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm going to come back to that. I find that to be startling, to have that doxological voice in the middle of danger and pain. They spread a net from my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. <laughs> and there's another little selah there. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your chesed, your love, reaching to the heavens. Your emet, your faithfulness, reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O oh God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Well, as I said, we've seen the story behind this psalm. And we see David in one of his most supreme moments of faith and trust in God. David was not perfect. We all know that. But he was a man known as a man who pursued God's heart. He had the opportunity to take power. He had the opportunity to murder to order to, in order to gain and obtain what was rightfully his, right? And he showed mercy when murder, murder was available. He was urged to do so by his men, but he chose a different path. And he chose a path of honor and trust in God and vindicated for that. So it's out of that experience of Saul that David wrote this psalm. Now, a couple things about the psalm before we get going. There are a number of different types of psalms in the book of Psalms. We have praise psalms, we have thanksgiving psalms, we have psalms of trust. We have Zion Psalms, we have what we might call royal or messianic psalms, we have lament psalms, and it's interesting, in this one there are several that come together. There's certainly lament, right? He's crying out to God in pain. There's praise, we see the doxology, be exalted O God above the heavens. And then there's an element of trust in the psalm as well, which helps us understand that this psalm has brought together a number of different categories in order to bring kind of a full-orbed idea of David's response to the situation that he found himself in. Um, and so, uh, and in the title, we see it's for the director of music or for the choir director, different ways of translating that. And that has everything to do with um, the fact that it was intended to be public. 
that when it was written for the choir director, the, the choir, whoever wrote it, David presumably, gave it to the choir director who taught the choirs who then taught the people. They didn't have hymn books, they didn't have PowerPoint, they didn't have things like we have today. They learned everything by rote. Okay, and they sang these things by rote. So it, this psalm was intended specifically, all of them were, in fact, 150 of them, but this one specifically, by explicit statement, was intended to be sung in the popular and congregational music of the time. Uh, it, it says that uh, it is to the tune of do not destroy. Evidently, there was a tune floating around that they knew, and they put the words to a well-known tune, and they sung those words of this psalm to that tune. We don't have that tune. We, uh, we don't know what that tune was. It'd be nice to know. It says it's of David, so we know that the psalm came from David. It's called a miktam. Now, frankly, we have no idea what that word means. Been lots of discussion, lots of uh, exploring, but we really don't know. Uh, Martin Luther thought it meant gold, and so he called them the golden psalms. There's a bunch of them, right? Um, there, this is actually this is the second of five psalms with this designation. But then you get the story when he had fled from Saul into the cave, and then I have worked off that a little bit to help us bring the the psalm to a little bit uh, fuller uh, light and and relief as we see this psalm written in that context. Another thing about this psalm is you have to note that there are two refrains. At verse 5 and verse 11, there is this refrain that repeats itself, right? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. Then you see it again in verse 11. So this divides the psalm into two parts. You have a stanza, and then a refrain, then another stanza, and then another refrain. So this gives us a feel for how the psalm has been put together and how we're to read it and recognize the two parts or the two stanzas. Just like in our music, we'll often have a, a, a stanza and then a refrain, then a stanza and back to a refrain. We've got the same thing exactly going on here, all right? And so this psalm actually has two stanzas and a refrain. Um, I'm enjoying this chord that is not staying behind my back. That's all right. It's all part of what we do. So, in stanza one, you have this plea for deliverance in verses one to four, and then the refrain. And then in stanza, verses six, stanza two, verses six to ten, we call it, I call it a promise of praise, and then again the refrain in verse 11. So what do we find here? What is the message of this psalm? What is this psalm all about? And in this psalm, we find the voice of praise, trust, and hope set in the life realities of danger, pain, loss, and fear. Let me say that again. This is the message of the psalm. In this psalm, we find the voice of praise, trust, and hope set in the life realities of danger, pain, loss, and fear. And what's important here for all of us is to understand this, that while this is David's song, it didn't stay with David. David died. He was not the only one that sang this song. It was given to the choir director. The congregation sang it. And generation after generation after David, they continued to sing the song. But they weren't singing it of David in the cave. That was his experience. It set the backdrop, but, but now 
the congregation throughout the centuries in Israel and into the New Testament and into the time of the synagogue and into the time of Jesus and into the time of the first century church, this song continued to be sung. Yes, with the backdrop of David, but now everybody was inserting their own reality, their own experiences, their own truths into what's going on here, and the psalm spoke for them. And it does for us today. One of the greatest tragedies in the church today is that we have not used well the God-breathed hymn book of Scripture that gives us a voice to sing praise and lament in our congregational worship. Paul made it very clear that that the church was to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it was great to hear a couple of songs, psalms read uh, in our service today. And we need to get back to this. We've got a God-breathed section in our Bibles of 150 God-breathed lyrics that are superior to anything that anyone can write today because they are God's Word. And so my passion and my appeal to the church is to please let's read the Psalms. And I know there's some people working hard, and I know Matt um, studied under um, Brian Dirksen. And uh, Brian Dirksen's one of my favorite musicians as well, and he's got a project going. Uh, he, he started this little group called the Shire Sheer Singers, and they are, they've got this project going of putting all 150 psalms to music. I've got a, their first couple of albums. I enjoy them very much. I'm not sure what he's going to do when he gets to Psalm 119. It's going to, going to take a while. But, uh, but they're working away at that, along with a few others, like Mike Jansen and a few others, who are working hard to get the psalms into music that the church at least can hear, if not sing. And I think this is, this is fantastic. And uh, I've been working in the psalms for th- almost 30 years now, and my appeal hasn't changed in that 30 years. And so what we find here in this psalm is a voice a voice to give us, uh, give us a voice in our time of danger and fear. Our time of post-pandemic, if you like. Our time of weary, uh, worry and uncertainty. Our time of recovery, of, uh, of loss of jobs and connection with family. And for some, even lament in the deaths of friends and family members. My father died during the pandemic. And we were allowed to go to a cemetery but with a limited number of people, and that was the only thing we could do with my dad in burying him. That was painful. It was very hard. My dad was a good man. So this psalm gives us a voice of praise and hope and trust in our God who has not been caught by surprise by the events of any of the things that we're dealing with right now. So we start with stanza one. Stanza one, the plea for deliverance, verses one to four. We start off by saying, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. And you feel the pain, we feel the passion, we feel the pathos, right? He's crying out, it's, it's lament. He's going through a tough time. It's, it's a dangerous time, it's a hard time. But immediate, and by the way, whenever you see something repeated like that, have mercy, have mercy, that's the way that the, that the psalmist and the Hebrew writers expressed emphasis. Have, have great mercy. Have a lot of mercy. 
Okay, and that was the way that they did it. They didn't, they didn't have a kind of a comparative and a superlative. They repeated things. That's how they did it. But then immediately he comes back to, I will take refuge, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And twice, have mercy, have mercy. I will take refuge and I will take refuge. Isn't that fascinating to see that kind of staccato effect in order? And, 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 and what, what we find here is that, that the psalmist understands that the call for mercy and the confidence of refuge go hand in hand. And I think that's so important for us to understand. These things go together in true spirituality. We can't avoid fear. We can't avoid anxiety. This is a human condition. But along with that comes that confidence that we have of refuge in God. And it's always that way. Fear and faith. Anxiety and confidence. We feel that all the time. And he says that he finds refuge in the shadow of God's wings. In the shadow of your wings, I find refuge until the disaster is past. We're not quite sure what that shadow of his wings means. It could be the picture of a kind of an eagle hovering over her nest with the with the eggs or the young and and the protection of a mother bird over her nest. Perhaps that's it. But it's really interesting because in the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant, there were these creatures called cherubim. And we know that they had wings extended over the mercy seat, over the center of the box. And these wings covered that box. They, they created a shadow over what was in that box and on that box called the Ark of the Covenant. And these creatures called cherubim were terrifying creatures. They had four faces. They had wings. They, had, they, they, had, they looked like burnished bronze. They had wheels. They had eyes. All kinds of weird and wild stuff that you can read in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Isaiah 6, and various other passages. And it's interesting with those four faces. They had the face of a lion, face of an ox, face of an eagle, and face of a man. And I remember hearing an exposition of another psalm by a, a, a scholar called Bruce Walke. And he talked about the fact that these, these four faces represented sovereignty. The face of a lion, the sovereign of the wild animals. The face of an ox, the sovereign of the domesticated cattle. The face of an eagle, the sovereign of the birds of the sky. In the face of a man, the sovereign of all creation, created as image bearers of God. And I think David may be referring to the shadow of those wings. And he's reminded in the midst of his chaos, in the midst of the cave, in the midst of danger and fear. He's reminded by the shadow of those wings that his God is sovereign. That his God is in control. That somehow, in some way, he didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He didn't need to murder when it was available, but to show mercy instead of murder. And so he could resist the push of his men, who, by the way, God never said that to those men or anyone else. They had made that up in order to push David forward. I cry out to God Most High, to El Elyon, that's a very common name in the ancient Near East for gods. But he is saying he is the true El Elyon, the most powerful of the El Elyon. To Elohim, the powerful one who vindicates me, he has that confidence. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. And guess who he sends? A little pause there, Selah. 
And then he'll talk about what was sent from heaven, what messengers were sent. And that little C law probably has the idea of pause or reflect or perhaps stand up. And so there's just this moment of pause after he says, he sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his chesed and his emet. His love. The, the best way to translate that word love in the Old Testament is to translate it with the New Testament word agape. His, his unmitigated, unconditional love. And he sends forth his faithfulness, his truth, his integrity, his confidence. And so these were the things that David was feeling as he is in that cave and he's, he sees Saul and he sees his enemies and he, and, and he sees and he hears his men pushing him and he goes back to the sovereignty of God. He goes back to El Elyon and he realizes that in fact it is God in his love and his faithfulness that comes from heaven that is going to allow him to be the king at the right time in the right place. But David isn't playing games. David is not uh, ignorant of the pain that he and his men were in. And the next line says, I am in the midst of lions. Obviously a metaphor to speak of Saul and his 3,000 men. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. And I find it interesting that even in the moments of confidence and the sovereignty of God, he still acknowledges the fact that life is hard. Life is dangerous. Things could go bad quickly. But out of that context comes this refrain. And this is what I find jarring in this text. So often we think that our praises come from when we are in good places. All is well. All is good. Everything's cool. Everything's in the way it should be. And out of that place of, uh, 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 of, of confidence, out of that place of, of well-being, we, we raise our hands and we sing our praises. But this isn't what we find here. It's in the place of pain and danger and loss and death and suffering and perhaps a little bit of anger over what's going on here. And he sings, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And here's what I learned from this. It's not out of a life of tranquility and all is well that we express praise. It is in the midst of pain and chaos. Praise of God never comes from a soft and easy place. It is never untainted. It is always conflicted. Even when we're in the darkness of a cave with the enemy at the door, even in the times of our hardest moments, and you have your stories and I have mine, somehow in some way, we bring praise to God. And, I, and I'm not trying to play games here. I'm not trying to soften anything. I'm not trying to be trivial. But so often it is in those times of deep pain and chaos that we find ourselves raising our hands to God and saying, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
It's often in the times of lament that we're called to doxology, to refer life back to God, the giver of life, and in some sense, praise God for his power, presence, and glory. This is what I love about the Psalms. They don't spare feelings. They tell it like it is. Some of you have heard me say this before, but in my study of the Psalms, and I've been doing it for decades now, well, one of the most startling things I found when I was first started working on the Psalms that the single largest category of Psalms are not praise Psalms, not Thanksgiving Psalms, not Psalms of trust like Psalm 23. But guess what? The single largest category of Psalms in the book of Psalms are lament Psalms. Why? They're our voice to God. And life is hard. And he's given us that voice. That's why it's so important that we use the Psalms. Because they give voice that most people today sometimes are uncomfortable with. And most songwriters today don't do well with. But we need to hear these voices and give ourselves that voice in church and congregations and community to be able to express communally and corporately the fact that life is hard. Well, with that, maybe you would think the psalm is about to end, but it doesn't. He goes on. So he starts off with this uh, plea for deliverance, ending with this refrain. Now we go into stanza two, and now we've got a promise of praise, and it will end with a promise of praise. But what I find fascinating is that he doesn't now move on to all is good, I will praise you, my soul will, will praise you. Look, what, look at the next verse. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And then he goes back into what? They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. He goes back into the pain. He doesn't immediately stay on the heights of praise of God. He goes back into the darkness, back into the cave, back into the difficulty. But this time he's got a bit of a mocking voice, doesn't he? (laughs) Because then he says in the last line, but they have fallen into it themselves. You can hear the chuckle because he knows that God is on his side and he will be vindicated. Eventually, but I find it fascinating that this song and, and some of us this is kind of a, this has been a popular chorus in, in the church over the over the years. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And but but it's it, it's framed by darkness on the verse before it and the verse after it, and I find that absolutely fascinating. But then as he carries on, he says, "My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast." Notice twice again repetition my heart is steadfast my heart is steadfast he's got confidence i will sing and make music and of course he wrote the song three times now he says awake my soul the word for soul there is actually the hebrew word for glory awake my glory awake harp and lyre (laughs) guitar and saxophone and Whatever else we can haul up onto the platform. Awake these musical instruments, right? And I will awaken the dawn. I will rise in the morning knowing that while the night was dark and long, there's a morning coming when we'll see God's goodness and grace. 
So he concludes by saying, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Isn't it interesting? David has a sense that he needs to speak to the nations. There needs to be a witness and a testimony to the nations. They need to hear about God's greatness and goodness as well as the the ability to lament. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is that, and there's that word again, hesed, agape, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your confidence, your loyalty, your integrity, and so be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So what is, what is the impact of all this? What do we kind of take home? There are four things. The first one is this. We have an amazing fresh encounter with God, perhaps in ways that we've never thought of before. What an amazing, beautiful, and complex God that we worship. He receives us with a full interplay of lament, fear, loss, praise, trust, and hope. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Christian faith revealed to us in Jesus Christ. What I love about the Psalms is that it doesn't matter how I'm feeling, I can come to God in worship. It may be. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 13, verse 1. It may be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus. It may be that voice. It may be, oh, give thanks, Lord, for he is good, his mercies endures forever. It may be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. It may be, sing to the Lord, sing hallelujah to the Lord. But all these voices are welcome into the throne room of the king. And we can enter confidently because of the things that we sang about when it comes to Jesus and the cross and the role that he played in bringing redemption to our lives. This is a God that David knew. This is a God that Israel knew. This is a God that the first century church knew in Jesus Christ. And this is a God that we're called to know now in, in the 21st century. David's song has become our song. David's hope in his God in the midst of lions is now our hope in Christ. And the same Holy Spirit that gave David what he needed is the same Holy Spirit that indwells each of us. And I don't know about you, but this is an amazing takeaway for me to understand all that. Second thing I see here is that this is amazing good news. People, this is the gospel. This is good news. Yes, we are to be people of praise, but we are to be people of praise who live in the trenches of a broken world. It is not for people whose life is safe and soft, safe and, soft and I don't know any, of anyone whose life is like that. Whatever those ravenous beasts have morphed into, a sickness, a broken relationship, a brutal failure, a mental illness or depression, a destructive habit, a deep debilitating disappointment, or simply life in very difficult times, we have God's messengers of love and faithfulness, chesed and emet, to help us lament, endure, hope, and praise. This is amazing good news. But it's good news for the world. David said, I will make all this known to the nations. Why? Because this is a God that we invite the world to be part, to, to worship. This is the gospel to the world. We can say to our neighbors, to our friends, to people who live around us, this is the God that you can know through faith in Jesus Christ. This is good news. There's nothing else like it in the world. 
And from the Psalms and a song like this, we take the message of the gospel found in Jesus Christ that we can actually bring this kind of thing into the throne room of the king by the name of Jesus and say, you can be part of all this. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son who says, welcome. Bring it all into my presence. Come unto me, all you who are weary and broken. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and light. Why? Because he carries the weight, and I will give you rest. This psalm may cause some of us to think a little differently. Maybe there's a new way of thinking here. Maybe some of us haven't quite thought this through in this kind of way. But I love the notion of the psalms being brutally honest like this. And takes us to praise. C.S. Lewis said, praise is not always easy, but it's always appropriate. And that captures us really well. So what is our response to all this? You know, I don't know you. I don't know your stories. I told you I have my story. You all, you have, every one of you have your own stories. I don't know what story you're bringing into this text. I don't know what thoughts are, are percolating through your mind as you think about the fact that that this is a psalm that is, that is given to us a voice in our days of darkness when we're in the cave, as it were. And I guess I simply say this to you, and I say it to myself as well. Let's hear the word of God. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to invade our lives, to speak to us, and take something home with us that is going to be significant and helpful. Let's pray to the Spirit that he will speak to us in a powerful and gracious way. Heavenly Father, we do pray that prayer. Help us to hear your word through the power of your spirit and have that impact our lives in ways that we, maybe we could have never, ever understood before. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.